Yeah. Because they're not catching on, or is it like, yeah, the Lord is here, or what? What was he trying to get out of that? Well, it's, I thought it was kind of like he called everybody together, and then it's almost like he puts himself on trial, and then he's going to put the people on trial, mm-hmm. and we're going to see who who comes out better in the end. So he's going to use this that terminology. Yeah, he's calling God as a witness. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. But I was like, man, he'd make a good attorney. That's what I thought as I was reading <laughs> chapter 13. But he was a judge, though, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he, he is considered a judge. Right. That's a good point. That's a really good point. He is a judge, and so to see him use some of that, I mean, that's, maybe that was common language for him. It is really cool. Yeah, can you uh, imagine doing that? You know, like I was kind of putting myself in that position. I'm like, I don't know if I want to ask that question. Have I wronged any of you? <laughs> I don't really want to know your responses. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, pretty cool that he is the leader and he is willing to do that. If only we had more leaders willing to do that and leading with godliness also. And I think it is perfectly right for us to interpret with those things in the background. Because that's what's going on for us right now. So when we're studying this, if we, if we come back to this in five years, we might have a totally different application, and that's okay. <laughs> that's, that's fine. I mean, it, I still think that it's, it's just the applicable truth is still the same. But we're going to kind of apply this in different ways because of what we're dealing with in our country right now. So, and I, I love that we get to have ladies Bible study all the way through the election. <laughs> we might need to have some prayer time or something or some tears or just boxes of Kleenex. I don't know. We'll see what happens. And I, later, yes, so yes, it's God's chosen man. Mm-hmm. I've thought that the whole, last four years. Yeah. That's who God chose, mm-hmm. you know, Donald Trump. So I'm going to pray for him. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do my best to support him because that's God's leader. <coughs> I, David sets a great example of that, and we'll get to that. Even though Saul was trying to kill him, he was like, that's God's man right there. So I'm going to respect him. Hi, Shelby. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and I've thought a lot about the Thy Kingdom Come prayer in response to my prayers for the election and for God's next leader because I have my selfish prayers. I know what I want so that we can keep our comforts and as far as I see them, you know, but maybe having the president that 
I don't particularly want to be in office. Maybe that would bring God's kingdom more than having the other one would. So um, might mean more persecution for us, but that might usher in God's kingdom even more. <sighs> so, <laughs> all right, Lord. <laughs> yeah, man, we're really off topic. This is great. I love it. It's fantastic. I, I don't want us to be afraid to talk about that, though. I don't want, uh, I think the election is going to be something that's on all of our hearts over the next month, and I want this to be a safe place to to. Think about it through scripture. That's what we need to do. Think about it through scripture and pray about it. And uh, it doesn't need to be a taboo subject. You know, I'm not afraid to talk about politics. Or if you want to talk to me more about my, my personal opinions, we can do that um, off record <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And how that actually means serpent. It does. And how Nahash was trying to divide the land. Yes. And I was like, our country is trying to be divided right now in every possible way that Satan can divide us. Yes. But Saul was humble in the sight of the Lord. And um, he was being, what's it, I said, Saul's leadership and humility didn't allow for Satan to divide, or Nahash. Nahash, right. Hey, in my notes, I call him the serpent most of the time. So there's no accidents in scripture. So the fact that Nahash means serpent, I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> That's incredible. You know what? <laughs> We're going to pray for that. We are going to pray for that. I love that. Yes. Well, and I think that fits perfectly with the application that I think we're going to pull when we look at these three chapters together. Uh, I wanted to maybe do a quick overview of where we've come from so so far. I don't know if we really have, have time for that, but uh, the first thing that I've pulled out of this so far, and I think this will help us fit chapters 11, 12, and 13 together. Number one, God takes his holiness seriously. We've seen that in these passages so far. And one thing I love about the Old Testament is that it's just getting to know God in story form, right? So he's the same God in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. And this is just another way for us to get to know him. So he takes his whole, he still takes his holiness seriously. Number two, God takes his word seriously. I think we've seen that already in the first 10 chapters of Samuel. Number three, we've seen God take obedience very seriously. He doesn't joke around about that. We joke around about that, but he doesn't. And he will judge disobedience. We've seen him do that so far in these chapters. We've also seen, number four, we've seen that God is giving. God is so giving. He gave Hannah a son. He gave Israel a prophet. He gave Israel his word through Samuel. He gave them the gift of substitution when he sent himself into enemy territory. When we talked about that, uh, he gave them the king they asked for. You know, he's very giving. I would also add that this week we are going to see that God is gracious and God is faithful. Those are two more characteristics that we're going to see. So I just wanted to point that out because as you, sometimes the Old Testament can be very intimidating, but it's really a very sweet place to study because it just showcases the character of God in story form. So as you dig those out, you can go, That's, that is my Lord. That is the same God of the New Testament as in the Old Testament. Now, based on those things that we've learned of God's character, uh, what application have we made so far? Well, we've, we've said that he's worth surrendering to. If God is all those things, he's worth surrendering. We saw that with Hannah. Uh, we saw that the catalyst for change is our yes, not God's. It's our yes. We need to say yes to God. We've seen that it's, it's really our own fault if we don't know God. You know, he's made himself known. He makes himself available. He's speaking to us through his word, through Christ, through the church, through the Holy Spirit. And so kind of our own fault if we don't know him. Number four, we've seen that how we treat God matters. How, how we um, uphold God's holiness 
It, it matters. It determines whether we're going to experience spiritual victory or spiritual defeat. That was all tied together in there. So if we're going to uphold the Lord, we're going to be a lot more victorious than if we're not, if we're just not going to care about it. Uh, we've also seen that our calling is the same as Israel's. We saw that last week. Israel was to be like God in order to reveal God to the rest of the world. So there is a reason why God tells us not to conform to the patterns of this world, because when we do, we sabotage our, our calling. This is, it, it hurts, it hinders what God has designed for us to do. And honestly, I think that hinders our joy you know, when we're not doing what God has called us to do. I think we don't know that. Don't, I think we sometimes don't realize that, that that's actually what we're feeling. Um, but I think it hurts us in a lot of different ways. Uh, and then just like we already mentioned, uh, we've seen that allegiance to any other king other than the Lord will just take, take, take from us. But when we recognize the Lord is our king, he's so giving, he will just constantly give, give, give to us. And so it's a really precious place to live with God as your king. It's not a scary place to live. So with these things in mind, we go into chapter 11. We've already talked about that Nahash means serpent. So kind of crazy. That's actually what it means. Uh, He's threatening the people of Jabesh Gilead. So the people suggest a treaty and he says, fine, I'll make a treaty with you as long as I can gouge out your right eyeballs. Great! That sounds super fun. (laughs) Let's do it on Friday. They're like, no, give us seven days to see if anybody will come for our rescue. Now, why the right eyeballs? Well, that would make them terrible warriors, but it would still enable them to farm. And it was an agrarian culture. I think I said that right. And so that would be like they're taxing to this king of Amnon. Ammon? Ammon? Yeah, Ammon, would be in probably produce and, you know, the work of their fields and stuff. So they could still farm if he gouges out their right eyeballs. So, you know, that was his deal with them. So you farm with your I know. Well, you can still farm with one eyeball. Ah, got it. But it'd be really hard. You wouldn't be able to see what you were doing with your sword. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So if you've ever noticed, I forget which psalm it is, but the Lord says, wait, is that how it works? The shield, is in, the shield is in the left hand, and the sword is in the right. So I think the psalm says, I am the shield. No, you're sh- okay, so you're shielding this side. Not, you're totally exposed on this side. This is a side note for you. So I'll find the psalm, and I'll tell you what it is. But God says, I am the shade on your right side. That's why. Because you're, you have, you've got your shield here, but you've got nothing defending you over here. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That's God. That's who God is. He's just, he's just so awesome. Okay. The Jabesh Gileadites, I'm going to call them ites, uh, they asked for this seven-day reprieve. I think Nahash agrees to this. Maybe. I'm going to speculate because he knows a little bit of their history. I'm not sure, but maybe. In Judges chapter 1, and this is one reason why this whole chapter just really rings with the book of Judges. Uh, this is all setting the stage for it. In Judges chapter 1, there's a civil war that breaks out between Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. And remember, Saul is a Benjaminite, okay? And there was the Benjaminites raped a Levite's concubine. And then that Levite sent her in pieces throughout all of Israel to rally up the rest of the tribes to go against the Benjaminites. There was one tribe that did not come to fight against the Benjaminites. It was the tribe of Jabesh Gilead. They didn't come. So then all of Israel, after that, once they realize, huh, they didn't come and slaughter the Benjaminites with us, they go and slaughter the Jabesh Gileadites. That's hard to say fast. They go and slaughter them, and then they take 400 virgin women and give them to the Benjaminites in that story. So the Benjaminites and the Jabesh Gileadites... (laughs) are related. (laughs) They have very close family ties. So when you see the people weeping in this passage over this, it's quite possible it's because they've got relatives that they're very worried about. Um, I don't know how many years between that whole scenario and where we're at now. I didn't even try to figure that out. It's been years. 
but there's generations here and it could also be one reason why i mean we know it's because god filled saul with the holy spirit but it could also be one reason for you know his aggression like those are my people those are the the only people that did not come against my tribe um way back when whenever that was okay so um nahash may have thought there's no way anyone's going to come against this tribe because of what happened you know, many, many years before, not knowing, perhaps, we don't know, that Israel had named a king, and guess who it is? It's a Benjaminite, right? But that's, okay, that's, yeah, the real reason is obviously why they won the battle is because of the Lord, but I'm going to get ahead of myself here. Okay, so verse 7, the dread of the Lord comes upon the people when, what do, it's interesting, what does Saul do? Saul cuts up an oxen and sends it throughout Israel. Isn't that interesting? So again, we have another connection with the book of Judges. Just like had been done to rally the troops against his tribe, he does now to rally uh, everyone in Israel against the Ammonites. Isn't that interesting? So I don't know what the connection is there, what Saul was exactly thinking, but it puts the dread of the Lord upon the people is what verse 7 says. That's the first time in Scripture thus far that that phrase, the dread of the Lord, is used in context to God's people. Usually the dread of the Lord falls upon the other nations. So it's kind of interesting what God is doing here, that the dread of the Lord falls upon them. And then they all come, right? 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men of Judah. So the fact that they, those numbers are separated. There's speculation there. It could be that this was written after the kingdom had already split. And so the writer is just recognizing 300,000 were from Israel, 30 were from Judah. It also could mean because there could already be division in the country, even now. They could be experiencing animosity. It kind of seems like a natural split when it does happen, when the kingdom pulls away. So maybe there's animosity even now. Um, we just don't know. But the point is, Israel wins no problem in this fight. They go up. Saul does a great job in this chapter. He's exactly what the people had hoped he would be, and he defeats Israel's enemies. That's why they wanted a king, right? To defeat their enemies. That's what he does. So the people rally behind him even more. They get real excited, new ambition, and they decide, okay, anyone who wasn't for Saul, y'all need to die. And Saul's like, no, 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 no. He's very wise in the way he acts, very godly. He not only shows kindness towards um, those people and, and says, no, no one's dying today, but then he gives the Lord credit, right? He says, we're going to celebrate, verse 13, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He knows who gave them the victory, and he recognizes God as the one who did it. He's not taking the credit. Why? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Now, as we've already mentioned, that's the same wording that's used several times in the book of Judges, when God fills his chosen judge with his spirit to go and empower him and enable him to deliver the Israelites from whoever is attacking them. It's the same, it's the same scenario. So I think the point of chapter 11 is this. God is still the one giving Israel victory, just like he's always done, even though they have a king. He is still the one allowing victory, just like he did, all those many times before, nothing's changed. That hasn't changed, even though they now have a king. God is still the one in control. So what I saw in this is that Israel had a very real problem, didn't they? They're going to lose their eyeballs, the Jabesh Gileadites, right? And then what's going to stop the Ammonites from coming after the rest of them? I mean, this is a problem, they have a very tangible problem. And the solution was spiritual. The solution was spiritual. Okay? This is what, this is, this is, this encompasses a lot of where I'm heading today. 
we have a lot of problems, right? We can go through and list them all. I've got problems. We've all got problems. Our nation has problems. There's a lot of things going on in our world right now. There's a lot of problems. The answer is spiritual. The solution is spiritual. Because God is over all things. If you need a verse for that, you can write down Colossians 1.17 and Ephesians 4.6. There's no one more qualified, more powerful, or more willing than God to deal with our problems or our circumstances or to help us through them. They had a very big problem, but the solution was spiritual. That's our first, well, our first principle tonight then. Whatever our problem, the answer is God. Whatever our problem, the answer is God. Whatever our problem, the answer is God, just like it had always been for Israel. I think that's what chapter 11 is showing us. They're still in the same predicament, They still have the same problems, even though they have a king, and they still have the same God, and he's still the one delivering them. He's still the one giving them victory because whatever our problem, the answer is God. So even though we have physical day-to-day struggles, problems, things we're dealing with, those have spiritual solutions. They have spiritual solutions. Does that make sense? We like to solve our problems with other physical things. Or we like to make a plan or five-step process. Or maybe we want a different government. Or maybe we need more money. That would solve our problems. Or maybe, you know, um, the answer is not, not a person. Maybe, um, maybe it's just a change of career. You know, like we're always trying to solve our problems with something physical. Uh, but it's not. That's not going to solve our problem. The answer is not reform. The answer is not justice. It's not buckling up our bootstraps and just trying a little bit harder. That's not going to get us anywhere. We're just going to be disappointed. The answer is God. He was the answer to this problem. He's the one who gave them the victory. Now, God may use some of those things, just as he used Saul, but Saul was not the answer. God could have done that without Saul. You know, God could have done it with anyone. God could have done it a million different ways, however he wanted to. The answer was God. That was the, the solution to their physical problem, was God, okay? So the things that I see happening today, I think they're just the physical effects of a spiritual pandemic. That's all we're seeing. Our problem is spiritual. You know, our nation is so profusely sick because they do not know God. If they would recognize him, if they would come to know him, we, we would see so many changes and amazing things happen. Hands down, the best thing we could do in any conversation or situation that we're going to come up against in the future or right now or tomorrow is to give the person God. That, that's, that's our solution. All of our physical problems, these tangible problems that we deal with, just like Israel, you look at Israel in Every single problem they had, the answer was spiritual. Does that make sense? Are we seeing that so far? Okay. So treating our problems with man-made solutions may help for a little while, but it's only going to treat the symptoms. It's not actually going to treat the root cause. And if you want to cure, what do you have to do? You have to treat the root cause, right? And our root cause is spiritual. That's our biggest problem. Sin is our biggest problem. So our answer is God, no matter what problem we have, no matter what we're dealing with. Here's a truth I think you can stick a fork in. That's what I wrote down. Stick a fork in this. Real solutions are never void of God. I, don't, I tried to think of one. If you come up with one, let me know. But real solutions are never void of God. If you're, if you're giving someone a solution... And it's void of God. I don't think it's a real solution. I think it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg. (laughs) It's just not really going to get anywhere. So then as we come to chapter 12, what we see 
Samuel do is try to draw Israel's attention to this truth, I think. Okay, he tries to show them, look, even though Saul said it, I don't, I don't know, Israel's all hail King Saul. And so he's going to show them, no, 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 no. No, you're, you're victorious because of God. He's the one who has constantly been defending you and faithful to you. He's the only reason you are where you are today. All right? He's going to particularly remind them of God's faithfulness throughout the years. So let's look at verse 3 of chapter 12. In essence, like we mentioned, because he is a judge, I love that. I didn't even think about that. It's so great. He's going to put himself on trial. That's where he's going to start. Verse 3. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And Israel's like, you haven't done any of those things to us. No, you're, you're completely innocent. innocent. So in essence, Samuel is asking them this. Has God done you any wrong by appointing me as your prophet? Has he offended you in some way by giving you me as your prophet? And they say, no, no, not at all. Okay, the next piece of evidence, please. I would like to call Moses and Aaron to the stand. Let's talk about them for a minute, Israel. So let's read verses 6 through 8. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Samuel is calling to account Israel's salvation story because the foundation of God's faithfulness for them and for us as well always goes back to our redemption. It always goes back to that. Do you ever feel like, well, why are we talking about the cross again? Why are we talking about that? Already several times in the book of Samuel, we've had their exodus from Egypt mentioned. Why are we talking about that again? Because it always goes back to that. It always goes back to the redemption story. That's where we can go to and go, God is faithful. God is faithful. If God does nothing else for us, which he's still going to do many, many things, but if he does nothing else for us, that's already enough to prove that he is completely faithful Wonderful, loving, merciful, forgiving. It all goes back to that. So that's why Samuel goes there. He's reminding them of their redemption story. God brought you out of slavery. Okay? Now, let's keep going. Verses 9 through 12. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerobabal, say, say, Jerob, Jerobal, Jerobal, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered, I like how he included himself in the third person, <laughs> and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. You lived in safety. God delivered you every single time, and every single time, you then lived in safety. So was God ever unfaithful to Israel? No, he wasn't. God kept rescuing them over and over again. They would cry out to that, him. He would come and rescue them. But then we get to verse 12. And we see, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So they break the cycle. The cycle all through the book of Judges had been you get, you get oppressed 
by a people group. You call out to the Lord, and he comes and rescues you. This time, they did not call out to the Lord. They just said, how about you just give us a king instead? That's why they were in so much trouble. But God is still faithful. He's still faithful. Now, what you think with me for a minute, according to 1 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, just jot it down, Israel is coming out of many years of peace under Samuel's leadership. One of those you lived in safety moments has been the last many years with Samuel as their prophet. And God's been blessing them. And now suddenly the waters are stirring and their peace is being threatened. And what do they do? They panic. They completely panic. What should they have done? Cried out. They should have cried out. And as we've already kind of been talking about tonight, I cannot help but see a parallel here. We have had amazing many, many years of peace in this country, and all of a sudden things are stirring like crazy, and we don't know what's going to happen. We need to cry out. We need to cry out to the Lord. We have a lot of problems. He's our only solution. Our answer is spiritual, and we need to cry out to him. That, was, that really challenged me this week. Have I really cried out to him over everything that's going on? Or have I just tried to put a Band-Aid on a certain situation? Or maybe for you, you've got something else going on, and you're like, look, honey, everything going on in the government, that doesn't concern me. It's my personal life that concerns me. Your answer is still God. He's still your solution. Your next principle our daily struggles, this is what I've been saying all along, our daily struggles have spiritual solutions. Our daily struggles have spiritual solutions. All of life is a spiritual battle, right? We know that. Ephesians 6 tells us that. So if we can just learn to think in a spiritual context whenever we've got these tangible, physical problems right in front of us, we will, we will get to the root cause. We'll be, we'll be able to find a real solution that works. And every time that solution is going to involve prayer and scripture. I don't think you can have a solution that doesn't involve either prayer or scripture when it comes to having a spiritual solution. They didn't cry out. They didn't pray. They didn't ask the Lord. You guys with me so far? Okay, this making sense? Yes. All right, so we're seeing then how our very real problems have a very real spiritual solution, right? Our answer is God, no matter what our problem is. Now here's what I love about this whole scene in chapter 12. What started as a trial of God's faithfulness ends with a trial of the people and a condemnation of the people. God starts with himself, well, God turns out very faithful, Let's put the people on trial now. They're unfaithful. That becomes very clear. And then Samuel's like, well, I'm just going to give you, uh, I'm going to show you, you know, how serious the Lord is about this. And he calls a thunderstorm to happen in the middle of the dry season, which is wheat harvest, which apparently is May or June for them. And that shook them up big time. This thunderstorm comes. God thunders and it rains. And, and they're like, we have made a huge mistake. <laughs> We have made God really, really mad. Samuel, would you please pray for us? We've messed up. We asked for a king. We didn't call out to God. We've ignored him. He's been faithful to us. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, I love this, it will be well. It will be well. It can still be well. God's like, it's not over. It can still be well. If you and the king both serve me, it's all going to be fine. Jump down now to verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. No sugarcoating there. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. 
but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Why can it still be well? It can still be well because God is still faithful to his own name. That's why it can still be well. God is always faithful. God, that's just who he is. It's not what God does for us that makes him faithful. It's just who he is. He's faithful to his own name. He's also really merciful and really gracious in this passage. I think we can see that. It can still be well with you. Yes, you have sinned greatly against me, but don't let that stop you from serving me. Some of us need to hear that tonight. We can, I think one of our hardest, one of the hardest things to do sometimes is to forgive ourselves. We might have somebody else say, I forgive you, and that means a lot to us. And, and we know the Lord forgives us, right? Yes, okay, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We know that. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But then we don't forgive ourselves. We don't move on from that. And right here, God is saying, move on. You've got to put that aside. I have forgiven you. Now serve me. And if you will serve me, it can still be well with you. I think that's pretty cool. That's who God is. But when we keep ourselves from serving God because we won't forgive ourselves, we, we just, we're just hurting ourselves. We're not allowing ourselves to move on, right? It's okay to move on. God just gave us permission to move on. You confess, you repent, you turn to him, and you move on. That's what he's asking Israel to do. And keep serving me. Mm -hmm. I will too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Man, that's a really good point. We've got to move on, don't we? We've got to forgive ourselves. We've got to move on. Israel needed to put this in their past, and they needed to move on. Now look also at verse 23. Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I just loved that so much. He knows what his job is as a prophet of Israel. He gives the people God's word, but he also takes the people before God. And he says, far be it from me to cease to pray for you. Now think about this with me for a minute. When did Israel get themselves in trouble? When they didn't cry out to God, right? When they ceased to pray. That's when they got themselves in trouble. Yes, absolutely, and I firmly believe it is, a, it is a sin for us to cease to pray because God's invited us to do it. He's told us to do it. He's commanded us to do it, and we don't do it, and then we get ourselves in trouble because all of our problems have a spiritual solution, <laughs> but if we don't pray, we're not going to be able to get to that spiritual solution. We're going to have to, we're going to try and solve it some other way. I've been reading in the book of Isaiah in, when I first get up in the morning. And uh, I really enjoy the book of Isaiah. I don't know why, but really do. And I've been reading it in the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation, I don't study out of it, but I do enjoy just reading from it, especially when I'm reading the major and minor prophets because it's hard to understand. So if you don't have an NLT Bible... I would encourage you to get one because I'm really enjoying the wording in it, but I don't use it to study. So um, anyway, I've been reading through that, and, and I've come to, to Isaiah 38, 37, 38, 39, and it's, it's the story of Hezekiah. I really like Hezekiah. And the king of Assyria is on his doorstep. He's like pounding on the walls of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah's got a big problem. He's got no army left. And the king of Assyria is just taunting him. Oh, you say you trust in your God? Well, what God has ever been able to save their people from the Assyrians? 
No one. In fact, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find enough soldiers to put on them. Like, he's just full of it and just, just giving it to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah takes it to God every single time. I love this so much. He says, at one point he gets a letter from this vicious king of Assyria, and he takes it and he spreads it out before the Lord in the temple. And he says, after Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. Oh, Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. He goes on a couple more verses, and here's my favorite part. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent this message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you prayed. It was that simple. It just stopped me in my tracks. I have goosebumps all over my body right now. (laughs) Because you prayed, I'm going to do something for you, and I'm going to save you from Assyria. You don't need to worry about them. And he does. And he goes out, and the Lord slaughters 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And they, whoever's left just wakes up to a bunch of corpses. And they're all like, we're out of here. And they leave. And it's all because he prayed. It's all because he prayed. Does that mean when we pray and we cry out to God that he's always going to do what we want him to do? No. Nope. It's not like a golden ticket. A lot of times, God's going to do exactly the opposite, probably, because we're very selfish people with very selfish prayers, and he is a very holy God, and he knows exactly what is best for us. Now, chapter 13, okay? We have like 10 minutes left to do chapter 13. Chapter 13. Okay, I'm going to skip a little bit. You will know, I don't know if you noticed, but verse 1 of chapter 13, the wording is kind of funny. Did you notice that? It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Like, there's, missing, there's, there's a few words missing in that sentence. <laughs> it's a grammatical problem. And in the Hebrew, if you read, actually, if you read that verse in the NIV or the NLT or the NASB, It says this. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. But the numbers 30 and 40 are not in the original Hebrew text. They're not there. So there's also this text called the Septuagint. Septuagint? I don't know a lot about that, so don't ask me too many questions. Don't ask me any questions. (laughs) But that's where they're, they're they're pulling from the Septuagint, these other translations, to get this 30 and 40. Also... In Acts 13.21, Paul says that Saul reigned for 20 years, or 40 years, sorry. It says Saul reigned for 40 years. So we know that, okay? So how do you put all this together when ours just said he lived one year and then became king? Like, is he one year old? This sounds so funny. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Let's put that together. The best explanation I read is that from God's perspective, Saul reigned legitimately before the Lord for two years. That makes sense to me. From the people's perspective, he was king for 40 years. You see that? And he was. He was still called the king, but he was no longer God's man after what happens here in chapter 13. Right? Saul is hard-pressed by the Philistines in this chapter. Jonathan defeated a small outpost, and Jonathan is his son, of Philistines, which only infuriated them more. And as a result, the Philistines bring 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. It says they were like the sand on the seashore against Israel. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of chariots. This is a big problem. We've been talking about problems. This is a big one. This is even bigger than the last one, right? Our problems just keep getting bigger. Isaiah 41.15, I told you I've been in Isaiah. I read this verse this week, and I was like, that's perfect. It says, so is this problem too big for God? Here's God's answer, no. This is what it says in the NLT. 
No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth, and notice this wording, as though it were a grain of sand. So they look like the seashore. There's so many of them. And God says, that's nothing. I pick up the whole earth as though it is one grain of sand. That's amazing. That's Isaiah 41, 15. I love that. This problem is not too big for God. So what does Saul do? Does he pray? He does not. He does not pray in this story. Does he cry out to God to save them because he remembers that Samuel had spoken of God's faithfulness? No, he does not do that either. Instead, Saul acts as though God is not going to act. That's what he does. And he goes ahead of God, and he just tries to do everything on his own by offering the sacrifices that he is not authorized to make. Samuel had given him instructions to wait for him for seven days. If you remember, this is not the first time Samuel has given him that instruction. He told him to do that back when he was going to declare publicly his kingship, right? said, wait for me for seven days. Well, now he says it again here. And I will be the first one to admit, had I been in Saul's shoes, I would have been a wreck. I mean, all of his men are leaving him. He's got this huge army in front of him with all of these chariots, right? And, and, and then all of these horsemen. And he doesn't have that many guys left. This is a really big problem. But no matter how crazy or big or scary our problems, here's what we have to remember. God is still God. God is still God. That's your last principle for the night. God is still God no matter what happens in life. No matter how big the problem is, he's still God. He hasn't changed. God is still God. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. And yet our tendency, just as Saul's, is just to go ahead of God Waiting is really hard. Waiting is really hard. I mean, anyone else with me? Waiting is hard. <laughs> but when you look at so many stories, especially in the Old Testament, those people had to wait. And they had to wait a really long time. Sometimes they went ahead of God. I do the same thing. I've done it before. I've gone ahead of God. Right? It's hard to wait. Sometimes I, th I think waiting is the hardest thing that God will ever ask us to do. Wait. So, if you're in a season of waiting, write Isaiah 30, 18 down. Isaiah 30, 18. This is one I like to keep, not literally, but figuratively in my back pocket. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. You may be waiting, but you have to remember, the Lord is waiting to be gracious to you. And at the end of that verse, it says, Blessed are all those who wait for him. Isaiah 30, 18. So even when we're waiting, even when it looks like this crazy, hard problem is just not going to work out, this is not going to work out, God is still God, right? God is bigger than all of our problems. Not even this scenario was too hard for God, and yet they didn't even have any swords. Did you notice that at the end of chapter 13? It says Saul and Jonathan are the only two people who have swords. So they're fighting with like wood clubs or tools or whatever else they have. And I thought, huh, that's really interesting too. What a spiritual picture for us, right? The enemy keeping them from using their sword, from using swords, from even having it, but from using it. Because wouldn't the enemy just love to keep us from using our swords, right? The Bible, scripture is our sword. He'd just love to keep you from using that. I thought that was a... Great picture for us. So what's Saul do? He relies on himself instead of God. That's what he does. He tries to solve his problem with a physical solution instead of a spiritual one. And he loses his kingdom. 
then when Samuel comes and confronts him, it's interesting to me that Saul doesn't even repent. Doesn't even pray at that point. He didn't pray at all in this story. He did not cry out to God. Girls, we have to pray. We have to pray. I know we've got problems. I'll get in line first. I've got problems. I've got to pray. If I want to have any real lasting solutions to any of those problems, I need to cry out to the Lord who waits to be gracious to me. I love that. But Israel didn't pray either, did they? Back a few chapters or a couple chapters when they asked for a king, the Ammonites are coming to get him. They didn't pray. They just wanted a king. They tried to solve their problem with a physical solution instead of a spiritual one, and they just got themselves more in trouble. And now Saul doesn't pray, and it costs him. Also, if we don't pray, it will cost us. It will cost us something. I think that's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, I think it's verse 17, the Lord says, pray without ceasing. Pray without, pray about everything because I am over all of it. And there's no real solution to your physical problem apart from a spiritual one. Are we getting a little better handle on chapters 11 through 13? How we can kind of look at this? Does it make sense? Phew, good. Now, oh, God. I thought it was interesting then, I, as I, like I told you before, I, I set the schedule over the summertime, and then at the beginning of this week when I first read through these chapters, I was like, I made a mistake. We should keep going and go all the way through chapter 14. But as I looked at this, I don't think that was a mistake at all. Look what God has us doing. He has us waiting seven days. <laughs> I was like, wow, you're amazing. He's going to have us wait seven days to figure out what his solution really was in this scenario. I love that. And I think it's just because God wants us to sit right here for a little while and just think about that he's bigger. He's the answer to our problems. God is still God. We have solutions, but we have to pray and trust and cry out to him and believe in him. Right? Yes. That's where we're at. And if we don't learn to rely on the Lord, it will cost us. But on the flip side, when we wait on the Lord in faith, He will act. It says He will. He will act either in our circumstances or in our heart. He's going to act somehow, or both, or some other way. He's going to act. It's probably not going to look like you think it will, but He will. And it will be good because God is good. And he is still God. Right? Let's pray. (laughs) Father, I'm just so thankful that you are still the same God, that we can still count on you just as the Israelites could. And you're still inviting us to cry out to you. Lord, we cry out to you now. Hear us, Lord. Hear our prayers. Our country's in trouble. We've we've got our own personal things going on, God, but we cry out to you. And I just ask for your your outpouring of your spirit, for real spiritual solutions, Lord, for these ladies. I just pray they will turn to you, they will listen, and they will trust, and they will wait, and that you will be gracious to them. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm